0: Welcome to the Unknown History Podcast. I'm your host, Giles Milton, author of Czech Mate in Berlin. This is episode 94, titled The Americans Arrive in Berlin. It's an exclusive segment from a new history audiobook I think you'll love from our friends at Macmillan Audio. Frank Howling Mad Howley was stationed 100 miles to the southwest of Berlin when he was given the green light to head to the German capital. His mission was for reconnaissance purposes, to reconnoitre the districts of the city assigned to the Americans and prepare for the arrival of the 1st Airborne and 2nd Armoured Division troops. It was June 17th and Howley was firing on all cylinders. Seven weeks after the Russians took control of the city, the Americans, were finally moving into their sector. Howley knew he'd be writing himself into the history books. He also knew that this had been the dream of every soldier since the D-Day landings. To mark the occasion, he vowed to arrive in such style that his Russian allies would remember it for the rest of their lives. It was my intention, he said, to make this advance party a spectacular thing. His team had expanded greatly since their time in Barbizon. It now comprised some 500 people, including intelligence officers, logistics, experts and secretarial support. He'd also acquired 120 vehicles, mostly Jeeps, half-tracks and 10-ton trucks. Howley decided to abandon all the vehicles requisitioned from the Germans, since most were covered in dents. I didn't want the Russians to see a miscellaneous collection of vehicles representing the American army. His was to be an all-American convoy, and he ordered each jeep and truck to be scrubbed, polished, and touched up with paint. He also arranged to have several hundred American flags printed and placed in the windshield of each vehicle, along with canvas flags on the right front fender of each lead car. The convoy was equipped with a supply lorry laden with 10,000 bottles of wine and whiskey to help them celebrate their historic arrival. Every convoy needs to be led from the front, and Howley's was no exception. Riding in the vanguard of this proud unit was the colonel himself, driving his magnificent Horch Roadster. He was most impressed when the other vehicles swung into line behind him. Quite a parade, he mused, with a company of the 2nd Hell-on-Wheels Armoured Division bringing up the rear and formal-looking machine guns bristling from the half-tracks. BP
1: added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico... It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
0: eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride, every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This great armoured column fired its engines on the morning of the 17th of June and began roaring eastward towards the autobahn. We moved along in gala spirit, wrote a gleeful howley. As the vehicles advanced, the half-tracks flung a swirl of dust into the late spring air, making the column visible for miles around. The excitement mounted as they neared Dessau, where a small pontoon spanned the river Mulde. This marked the frontier between the American and Soviet zones of occupied Germany. Once they crossed the bridge, they'd be entering territory controlled by the Red Army. As Howley steered his convertible horch onto the rickety bridge, he noticed a giant arch on the far bank with huge pictures of Lenin and Stalin gazing down upon us. These were flanked by a banner with a Cyrillic inscription that read, "'Welcome to the Fatherland.'" He felt as if they were entering a land that had been annexed by the USSR. A Russian officer was awaiting them on the far side of the bridge, he guided him towards a much larger bridge that traversed the river Elbe. There, a phalanx of Russian guards snapped their salutes. Howley's crew had been expecting a trouble free trip to Berlin, but they now came across an unexpected snag. Suddenly, we were confronted by a roadblock, a red and white pole leaning across the road. Howley's instinct was to push it aside with one of the half tracks but he chose discretion over valour. We didn't want to break the pole or force the guard. This was just as well, for he was directed to the Russian border control, where a Soviet officer named Colonel Gorilik was awaiting him with a drink. Howley was keen to press onward to Berlin, but he thought it polite to accept the colonel's offer. German champagne was served and toast drunk. We thanked our host and prepared to depart but his departure was blocked by the Soviet colonel. You cannot go just yet. There is a formality. Howley and his men were held up for many hours to their great annoyance. And when they were finally escorted into Berlin, it was made abundantly clear that they were not welcome. Howley fumed and argued with the Soviets, but when they refused to allow him and his men into their own sector, he had no option but to return to his previous headquarters a humiliating retreat. It was to be another two weeks before Howley once again set off for Berlin. This time he was confident of success, for it was as if the entire American army was on the move. The autobahn that linked Hal with the German capital was the highway to Bedlam, jam-packed with tanks, trucks and other vehicles, military government people and troops, all hurrying towards the previously forbidden city. When a lone Red Army officer tried to halt Howley's vanguard advance, he was given a swift lesson in American authority. One of Howley's men jumped from his car and personally deposited the struggling Russian in the ditch to allow our column to pass. This time, there were no hitches. Howley's detachment finally pulled into Berlin in late afternoon, by which time a summer storm was pelting huge raindrops from the thunderous sky. There was mayhem as thousands of troops poured into the ruined city. Howley's A1A1 unit was better prepared than most, carrying field equipment and tents. The colonel directed his men to the forested Grunewald district and ordered them to pitch camp. Under the dripping trees, I pulled up my vehicles in a protective circle, as in the old covered wagon days on the prairie, and posted guards. Not a Russian, not a German could have interfered with us. He was still accompanied by his chic Parisian interpreter, Hélène Antoinette-Woods, who changed out of her trousers and into a skirt because she was fed up with being sexually harassed. One of Howley's intelligence officers, William Heimlich, was sent on a recce of the rain city and was depressed by what he found. Apartment buildings were gutted by fire and explosives, he said. It looked like a cemetery of giants. The few people out on the streets were pale and malnourished. Shocked into utter silence, they moved about the city like zombies. They were starving, that was clear. Those who'd known Berlin before the war were left reeling by the scale of the destruction. The American correspondent Kurt Rees had spent his youth in Berlin. Now he found his old stomping ground had been wiped from the map. Gone was the school I'd attended, the house where my parents had lived, the house where my grandmother had spent her last years. It seemed to me that a great part of my life was completely and utterly gone. Frank Howley set to work immediately, recruiting 1,200 German labourers to fix up billets. No longer would his men have to camp out in the Grunewald. Berliners were turfed out of their homes with a moment's notice. When still in Barbizon, Howley had told his men that possession was ten-tenths of the law. Following this maxim to the letter, he helped himself to a rambling Wilhelmine villa in leafy It was a house fit for a regent, a solid cake of a building with a grand portico and four gigantic urns decorating the stone-lined pediment. Howley sent his senior officers on a fact-finding tour of the six American districts they were to command. When they reported back to him later that afternoon, they spilled a sorry tale of looting and theft, with the Soviets engaged in grand-scale industrial pillage. They'd dismantled the refrigeration plant at the abattoirs, torn stoves and pipes out of restaurant kitchens, stripped machinery from mills and factories, and were completing the theft of the American Singer sewing machine plant when we arrived. When the Soviets refused to allow Howley's men into the districts the Americans were to run, the colonel took matters into his own hands. We move in at daybreak and set up military government, he told his commanders. Don't get into a fight, but protect yourselves if you have to. It was a high-risk strategy, for it was possible the Russians would resist the American action. His commanders swept into their appointed districts at dawn the following morning, securing key buildings, seizing mayoral offices and raising the Stars and Stripes. They also posted two ordinances. The first declared the establishment of the American military government. The second announced the penalties for crimes committed against Americans. Within hours, Howley received news of their success. By the time the Russians woke up, the whole thing was an accomplished fact. Nine weeks after the Red Army had captured Berlin, a third of the city was finally in American hands.
1: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and